0: So we're continuing our series in Ezra and Nehemiah, and I would encourage you, if you haven't yet, go across to YouTube or to the Bible Project's own website and have a look at the overview of Ezra and Nehemiah that John Collins and Tim Mackey have put together. It's exceptional, it's eight and a half minutes of time, well spent. Also if you go back and listen through the second week of our Ezra and Nehemiah series, um, you can watch that in full during the live stream. So. We're in exile, we're pilgrims not tourists. These are the themes that we're living with and that there's a rebuilding and a renewal that God's calling us to be a part of after all the things that we've been through over the past year and indeed over many recent years as we'll be thinking about um, in uh, in the moments to come. So that first week we were looking at God's providence in King Cyrus giving permission to Zerubbabel and the Jewish people to start the process of the rebuilding of the temple and of the altar in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 2, well in chapter 3, but in week 2, we were looking at the return of the people of Israel and the rebuilding that went on. Then last week, the opposition and adversity that they faced that's detailed in chapter 4 to 6, which also includes opposition that happens in the time that we're going to be thinking about today, Because today, we jump forward 57 years um, to 458 B.C. 458 B.C. That's going to be the time frame that we're working in. So, we were were at 520 um, or so B.C. Now we're talking about 458 B.C. And Ezra finally enters the story. We've been talking about the book of Ezra. Ezra hasn't showed up yet. Indeed, at the start of the book, it's entirely possible that even if he had been born, he was just very little. And Ezra makes a journey. This Ezra is a, a priest, and uh, he makes a journey with a large group of people from Babylon to, um, to Jerusalem. Now, Babylon, of course, is now not the seat of the Babylonian Empire, because Cyrus overthrew the Babylonian Empire, it's now the Persian Empire, and it stretches all the way in one direction. You can look this up. Um, it stretches all the way to India, northern India in one direction, northern Africa in the other direction, and, and all the way up to northern Greece as well. It's a huge area that is governed, in um, this time now, by King Artaxerxes. There's a name that you probably didn't consider for your boys when they were born, Artaxerxes. And... Um, Seventy years after King Cyrus grants Zerubbabel permission to return and rebuild, Ezra makes this journey with the permission of King Artaxerxes. So Ezra makes this journey. It's a 900-mile journey, and it takes him five months. And the, even though some of you are thinking walking 900 miles would be uh, a big task. Five months is a long time. And what that's a sign of is that they were traveling as households. So they had the elderly, they had children with them, they had the entire households were, uh, took, uh, uprooted from their homes in the Babylonian empire and made the, sorry, the Persian empire from Babylon and made their way round to Jerusalem. Mirroring, of course, the journey that Abraham had made all those years before and so that journey is is the big move of people from um from Babylon to Jerusalem Ezra is a levite we spoke about that second week of um second week of uh advent we had a look at this about the Kohanim and the levites the the priestly Cast who um, who were all descended from Aaron, Moses' brother, and time is taken in the chapters we're looking at this week, Ezra chapter seven and Ezra chapter eight, to explain exactly how Ezra is a Levite, and then also it goes on to explain how many people from each household, how many. Um, relatives of David, how many descendants of Phineas, and all sorts of other people there who are fathers of great households. And some of these names you'll recognize, many of them you will not recognize. But as I said the first week, these names meant something to the people who are originally reading this as the chronicler who put Ezra and Nehemiah together, gathers all the history together. So Ezra is a Levite. He's a priest. And Ezra the Levite. This this um, focus on the story and this focus on the families from which people come. And by the way, Ezra's lineage back to Aaron skips a few. It just is picking out some important figures in there, including Zadok the high priest. Oh, there's there's all sorts of stuff in there. If you want to go look at it yourself, but it's there to demonstrate that Ezra has impeccable Jewish roots. Listen to this. This is from Ezra 7:27. This is Ezra speaking, "Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put into the king, into Artaxerxes' heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way." There's that phrase, "the God Of our ancestors. It's a way of saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's also all of Jacob's sons who made up those 12 tribes of Israel. And all of that lineage and all of that history, all of those people, men and women alike, make up the origin of this people group. Ezra has roots, deep Jewish roots. And in acknowledging that, he's acknowledging that he stands on the shoulders of his forebears. So Ezra has deep roots. Here's, um, Let's take a moment to have a look at some of the story. This is from Ezra 7, verses 1 to 6. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes king, of Persia, You notice it's changed from the Babylonian Empire of Nebuchadnezzar over in Cyrus to the Persian Empire. Ezra, son of Sariah, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, eventually son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him." Just think about that for a moment. Because God's hand was on Ezra, the temporal powers who were not Jewish, the people who were in charge who were not Jewish, decided to assist to help Ezra in this exploit, to help him. And he knew the law of Moses. And if he knows the law of Moses, He understands, remember last week we were talking about how faith in God and history are melded together in those first books of the Bible, indeed in this book as well. That this is a history told with an understanding that God's at work in their midst. And indeed that theological understanding of history becomes the predominant way of interpreting what happens to these people. And so it is for Ezra. So it is for Ezra. Ezra has roots. So he's a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the God of Israel had given. This is their way back into the promises of the covenants. He knows the story of his people. He knows the story of God's people. And he will be reminding them, reminding them, telling them, bringing them back to the stories that gather them together as a people. Here's another passage from our two chapters in Ezra today. After these things, oh no, we've, we've had that. Here we go. This is the slide we're looking for. This slide is the promise that Ezra knew from the prophet Jeremiah. Remember as Jerusalem was being destroyed, as the Jews were being carried off into a second exile, we had a look at this the first two weeks, this promise. Jeremiah the, pro- the prophet And Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel are the three major prophets who mirror Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three patriarchs, and into exile they go. And as they go into exile, as Jerusalem is overthrown, as the temple is destroyed, and all of the things that were in Solomon's temple, that first temple that David had believed for, all of the the Ark of the Covenant and the laver, and the bowl of incense, and all of that is taken away. Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah said it will be 70 years that you'll be in exile. By the time we get to Ezra, It's been not just 70 years, but 70 years more. So it's now 140 years. And indeed, if we were to look in Daniel 7, the promised Messiah who was to come would be 70 times 7. So only two of those have passed, but we'll get to that in a future week. Two of those 70-year periods have now passed as Ezra brings back this great multitude of people back to Jerusalem. Now I, writes King Artaxerxes at the start of this letter that he gives to Ezra so that he's got safe passage, now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasures of the trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, um, may ask of you. He's saying to all the treasurers around the Empire, give him what he needs. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Here we have a temporal power, a, an emperor saying, help him out, make sure it happens. And those of you with an eye on the hilltop project are probably with Colin Aitken will be waking up at the moment and saying, oh, good, oh, good. Funding for a project. Again, we'll come back to that. So there's this letter. Ezra has a letter in his pocket to explain to all of the various authorities that this group of people will be moving through, that not only are they to have safe passage, but he's, got, he's, he's to be provided with resources. Get this. I like this. This is from later in the story in Ezra 8. There by the Ahava Canal I proclaim the fast, so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. Remember, it took five months for them to make that journey. I was ashamed to ask the king's soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road. Why is he ashamed? Because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. I love this. This is Ezra recognizing that even though we're getting help from the powers that be, if we say we trust in God, we better believe like we mean it, or we better behave like we believe it. How about that? I love that bit of the story. If we're going to trust God for the way ahead, then we better behave like we really trust him. And make sure our trust is in the right place, as it says, the psalmist says in Psalm twenty, "Some hope in horses and chariots, but our hope is in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel." It's an amazing bit of the story, right? Let's have a chat about roots, shall we? Seventy years ago, that I want you to get this in your head. What was your family like 70 years ago? Some of you, many of you, I think everyone in this building wasn't even born yet 70 years ago. What did your family look like 70 years ago? Just in case you're doing the maths, 1951. Where did they live? What did they do? The importance of memory, the importance of memory Who in your family told the stories, held the stories, shared the stories? Who passed on the the history of what it was like for your parents or your grandparents, your great-grandparents? I remember Ross once showing me a video where a guy was asking, how many of you can name every one of your great-grandparents, all eight of them? And there may be more if there were were step-parents in there as well. How many of us can actually do that? Now, some of you are genealogists, and you know this stuff. But for many of you, you won't be able to. You'll have a patchy picture. And that's just your great-grandparents. Speaking of great-grandparents, I was in a slow meeting this week. Has anybody been in a slow meeting over the last couple of weeks? I'm having a look. Anyone been on Zoom? And it's just been, there's important stuff maybe getting done, but you realize you don't have a contribution to make to that particular part of the meeting. I was in a meeting a bit like that. But because I was on Zoom, I was also sat at my PC. So I decided to have a look. Now, I didn't know what the theme was going to be for this week. I was going to tell the story of Ezra, but God was at work in this. I was trying to find out some stuff about my grandfather, who has, up until yesterday, I could find nothing online about my grandfather at all. This is my dad's dad. His name was Edward Watkins Nicholas. We've just lost that light joel so if you want to cycle that then i'll reappear from the darkness so i tried to have a look and i couldn't find anything about my grandpa but what i could find were some things about my great grandpa now some of you have done this um, will know that uh, there's all sorts of records are now online and it's a wonderful thing but of course many of them are behind a paywall so i stumped up my five pounds or whatever it was for some credits, and went looking. And I learned more this week about my great-grandpa than I've ever known in my life. And in 1951, 70 years ago, he was 81 years old, and he was still alive. As I was looking through the records, I found this um, this picture. This is my great-grandfather, the Reverend Edward Nicholas, and he was still alive seventy years ago. I discovered that he was born, I think Kezi done some digging so she could have probably told me the birth year, but he was born in 1871 in Pembrokeshire in Wales. He trained for the ministry at the University University College Cardiff and then at Brecon Theological College. As far as I can tell this is his first church, and if this is his first church, then he was ordained the same age as I was at 29. He became pastor of St. Paul's Congregational Church, Swansea, on Thursday, the 11th of October, 1900, and he served there for, well, nearly six years. After that, he went to minister in London. And actually, all of this makes sense, because a few years ago, my mother gave me one of those things that's fascinating, but you don't quite know what to do with. Here is a tray. This is a commemorative tray, which was given to my uh, my, grand, my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother, so to Edward and Emma, um, Nicholas, and in September 1906, and that plate. Um, lives in my house. So this was presented to them from St. Paul's Congregational in Swansea on the event of them moving to London. Well, they moved to London to minister in Bethnal Green. And they went to Victoria Park Congregational Church in September of 1906. And here's a picture of that church. But just let you have a look at that. Have you seen it yet? I don't think you have. Here's a picture of that church. Hey, that's grand. He ministered there from 1906 to 1916. And in 1916, he went to this place. This is Attercliffe Zion Congregational Church in Sheffield, right in the heart of the cutlery making and smelting district of Sheffield, and he ministered there um, from January 1916. After that, he got a call somewhere else. But just to give you an idea of how much Seventy Years Changes Things, that church was the family church of someone who was alive 70 years before my great-grandpa went to Attercliffe Congregational Church. I'm not going to say too much about this person, but they're worth looking up when you get a moment. This lady is Mary Ann Rawson. Those of you who know your British history may have heard of her. Mary Ann Rawson was a leading abolitionist. Um, She was part of the Sheffield group who campaigned um, for people to stop using sugar in their tea and sugar even in their cakes. They did that to highlight the plight of slaves in the plantations in the West Indies, and to highlight the difficulties experienced by those who were caught up in the transatlantic slave trade. Many of you who are at school will have learned something about this. Well, Mary Ann Rawson was married to a banker who died quite young, so she was a lady of reasonable means, and she had time on her hands. She was actually at the first international congress of abolitionists. She corresponded with Frederick Douglass and Thomas Clarkson. Um, she had William Wilberforce visit the house. This lady was a key figure, indeed. In the there's a famous picture, um, a painting of the first Congress, uh, the International Congress for the Abolition of Slavery. And right there on the right, with her roughed hood, is Mary Ann Rawson. And she attended Attercliffe Zion Congregational Church, though. By the time my great-grandpa got there, um, she'd been dead for a while. She died about 1880 and is buried in the burial ground just next door to it, which has recently been saved to be conserved as part of the history of Sheffield. There you go. But you can look her up online. She's a fascinating lady, absolutely fascinating, godly, godly lady. Let's move back. After Attercliffe Zion Congregational Church, Edward Nicholas got a call to go minister in Sandown Congregational Church on the Isle of Wight in June 1927, and he moved there. And indeed, um, that's when this photograph was taken. I think it was the Sheffield Post that this appeared in as he made his way to go to the Isle of Wight, which is the place where he would finish ministering, and then they liked it so much down there in the Isle of Wight that they retired there. And indeed, my dad used to go on holidays with his family to Sandown, and my aunt retired there with her husband. Roots. Here's something that was said after Edward Nicholas left Swansea. He, he was brought back from a, for a presentation um, from the Federation of Evangelical Congregational Churches of Wales. And this was said, this comes from the South Wales Daily Post for the 25th of June, 1907. He took a great interest in every work in the town, that's in Swansea, that had for its object the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. How good does that sound? And I read that and I thought, do you know what? I like those roots. I like those roots. That's, I'm giving thanks for that. Even though I never met him. Now, As I did that research during that meeting where where things had got a bit slow, and I did some of the research then and some of the research yesterday, I realized something about the churches which my great-grandpa had served in. I realized something about those churches. Would you like to know what that is? Here we go. St. Paul's Congregational Church in Swansea is now Maya's Indian Restaurant. It's a takeaway and a restaurant. Apparently, it's quite good. There's some TripAdvisor stuff about it, but his first church is now a curry house. Victoria Park Congregational Church in Bethnal Green was damaged There was during the Blitz in 1940. Um, the approach road took a heavy pounding um, and it was damaged. The church finally shut in 1953 and was bought over by a Church of England school, and it's now part of that school. That was a 2,000-seat church. Attercliffe Zion Congregational Church saw its population dwindle in the area indeed one local historian had said it was a church at the end of the dingiest street in sheffield as the uh, the inner city slums were cleared the local population moved with them out into the suburbs and by the late 1940s the congregation had dwindled to a fraction of what that church could seat. and again it was a two thousand seater church It was used as a warehouse and used for storage, and then in the 80s, um, there was a fire in the neighboring warehouse It was badly damaged, and in 1987, it was demolished. Sandown Congregational Church in the Isle of Wight, in 2016, was approved for demolition. If you look closely, you can see the tie bars that are holding the front wall together, things that send shivers down the spine of every property convener in a church is seeing that because that means that the walls are giving way. I don't know yet if that's gone, but it was demolished. And so I wrote a message in the meeting to a minister friend of mine, Keith Mack, at St. John's of Kings Park, the church I grew up in, and I said, Keith, every church my great grandfather ministered in is shut. That is a sobering thought, is it not? That's a sobering thought. And I, I was thinking about that. And, you know, our life's work, what we pour ourselves into, so much of it seems so temporary, so sketchy. Sometimes I'll be talking with Alistair Dunlop and he'll say, oh, we're on a knife edge, you know, just, just if things go this way or that way, then perhaps we'll face disaster. And that's true. That's true. Any good church is only uh, one disaster or two disasters away from real problems. And we're living in an age now where many congregations are dwindling and are struggling. And throughout this lockdown, that process has been accelerated. It's a sobering thought. But Keith got back to me with a reply that made me smile, because it's true. This is what Keith wrote in the Zoom message. It is. Yeah, it is sobering. Yet the kingdom of God keeps growing. Amen? The kingdom of God keeps growing. That quote about um, my great-grandfather, that he was interested in every work in the town that had for its object the the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. Well, what is the kingdom of Christ? Where is the kingdom of Christ? You see, when we think about our roots and we think about that story of Ezra, Ezra's legacy is in those precious people that he brought back from exile and in the lives he touched through his leadership and his teaching and the reestablishing of the people who would populate Jerusalem and the second temple, the people who would be there. When the Magi came through, the people who would be there when seven miles away the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, the people who would be there like Simeon and Anna, who were ready to see the Messiah arrive, the people who would be there. To to see through the events of that first Easter and then on the day of Pentecost, respond to the call when Peter the fisherman gets up and preaches, and people who he would sit under the teaching of respond as they hear the good news of the kingdom of God, of the love of Jesus, spoken in their own language. That's the legacy that we leave. The legacy that we leave is in people. The legacy we leave is in people and in the blessings that we hand on, many of which have been passed on to us who've gone before. Now some of you, I realize, are the first Christians in your family that you know of. But if, if you were born in this country or if you were born in many other countries in this world. There is ever such a possibility that there's people you don't know about who prayed prayers that have manifested themselves in your life. And if you are genuinely the first Christian in your family, my goodness me. The scripture's talking is Exodus 20, the blessings of a faithful generation going on for a thousand generations. A biblical generation is 40 years, and I did enough maths at school to know that's 40,000 years of blessing. And we struggle to go back 70. The legacy that we leave is, is, is people, is in people. The roots that we pass on that really matter is in the people that we bless. And there was Edward Nicholas. His son went on to become a minister, and his son had my dad, who was responsible for helping pass on faith in Jesus to me. And indeed, my dad was a preacher too, and he preached here in this church in Gorebridge. As we pray this week alone or in ourselves, take time to remember your roots and give thanks to God for all the blessings that have come your way. Now I know almost all of our family stories are fraught with difficulty and, and they're sad stories and sometimes there's real horrors in our background too. but almost everyone, perhaps everyone, can stop for a moment and find something to give thanks for. As you gather in your prayer cells, as you think on your own, think about the roots that God has gifted to you, the blessings, the good things that have been passed on to you as an inheritance. And then, as you give thanks for that, think forward 70 years and ask yourself this question, What blessing am I laying down for the next generation? Those of us who are parents, we're bringing up the next generation's parents. And they'll bring up their parents. And we'll get to, I'm thinking about this stuff uh, because I'm a granddad now. And give it another 25 years or so, and I might be a great grandpa. I might even live to see my great grandchildren. Edward Nicholas did not. He died in 1957. He didn't even get to meet my mom, which is a shame because she's lovely. But he lived to 86 years old and got to see many things. And then his work was done. And it's now handed on to us who are alive now. And what are we going to hand on? What are we doing to hand on a blessing to our children? and our children's children, and our children's children's children as we go forward. Because in 70 years, they'll be alive. Let's go back to one of those churches. This is from, I've got to get this right, the London Metropolitan Archive. There you go. I bet none of you have been spending your time in in there this year. But it's writing about This chapel here, Victoria Park Congregational Church, was registered in 1865 as an iron chapel. It was opened in 1864. A new building was constructed at the southwest junction of the Approach and Bonner Roads, seating 2,000 in 1869. The church had the highest congregational attendance in Bethnal Green in 1886, when 885 attended the morning service, and when 412, uh, 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 and then in in 1903, sorry, when 412 attended the morning service and 625 in the evening service. That's just three years before my great grandpa went there, including Sunday schools at the Victoria Hall and at Twig Folly, that sounds like fun, free concerts, work among the poor, missions and ragged schools. On the approach road was a children's home for orphans. There was all sorts of work going on. And indeed, in, um, in the South Wales Post, there's talk in the article of the work that, that they went into. People were seen as going into London to go work. Bethnal Green in the east end of London was a tough place. That's where the craze grew up. A lot of poverty, a lot of hardship, a lot of opportunity to minister the gospel. And though Victoria Park Congregational Church is shut now and has been shut for many years, indeed, it closed its doors finally only two years after the date we're thinking back to in 1951. How much of that work in the people who are assisted, in the folks who worship, in the kids who are brought up through Sunday school, in the poor who are assisted, in those who are given a hope and a future who did not have one. How much of that continues in the lives of people even to this day? Our legacy is left in people. The key roots that we have are in people. So we're thinking in this season, we're, we're getting ready to go find some funds for the Hilltop Project here. But as I've said, the building is just a tool. And actually the Hilltop Project ultimately isn't a building. It's not a redevelopment that holds the building of an atrium. But it's the envisioning of a place to minister Jesus' love to people. People that Jesus loves. People that He is longing to reach or He's trying to reach through us. Friends, think about our roots here as a church. Think about the, the, the temple church and ministering in, the, in that rural community over centuries. It goes back to the 12th century, the origins of Temple Kirk. Hundreds and hundreds of years of faithful service in the local community. Think of the Pride Brothers in the 1830s petitioning Dowkeith Presbytery and asking for a church to be planted to reach the workers in the new powder mill and the workers in the deep mines a new battle parish responding to the call to the extent that this place was built and opened in 1837 with a bell that was gifted from New Battle Parish and is older than the oldest bit of this church building. Think of the vision of the Free Church of Scotland as it stepped out from the constraints that it saw on the Church of Scotland and envisioned the planting of a congregation here in St. Paul's um, United Free Church. And of all of that gathering in in 1975, friends, we have deep roots, deep roots, but the most important roots we have are in the people who loved and prayed and soldiered, some of whom we know, some of whom we don't, who made sure that there was a church family for us to be a part of here. And the congregation that is gathering here Sunday by Sunday that gathers online represents the input of tens of thousands of faithful saints over countless generations going right back into those deep roots in the family of God. And if you're not part of the church family here, think about your own church family or of the Christians who have poured into your life. And as we gather in those prayer cells this week, the two, three, four, make one if you don't have one. Let me know if you want to leave one. Let me know if you want to be a part of one. We're gonna hook you up. We're gonna set up set up groups all over the church. Unlike a couple of dozen of them, we've got to have the capacity for that. Who knows what good things those prayer cells are already praying into being for this generation and for future generations. Friends. God is calling us to rebuild and to renew. And yes, we face opposition and adversity. We face difficult times. But we can because God is with us. If God can turn the heart of the Persian emperor to help Ezra, then He can do that for us. He can do it for us. Listen to this. This is from, um, this is from Ezra chapter 8. Just a very short phrase that encapsulates the consummation of so much praying and longing. Then the exiles, this is from Ezra 8.35. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity, that pregnant word for the Jewish people, Sacrifice burnt offerings to the God of Israel as the freed slaves had done in the tabernacle as they were doing now in this temple, 140 years after Jeremiah's prophecy. Friends, it takes time. It takes time. But Jesus has got us. We face the ups and downs. Sometimes it's not fast enough. Sometimes we face defeat. But Jesus has got us. And our roots go deep not just into our family by name, but also into the family of God. For friends, we are pilgrims, not tourists. We're called to rebuild and renew. And the deepest roots that we have are in the self-same family of God that we have read about in the book of Ezra today and we'll continue to read about as we finish our journey through Ezra and into Nehemiah. We have the deepest roots imaginable because we, by Jesus' grace, are grafted, adopted in to the family of the one true Father, And we know that we're His. We know that we're His. Because when Jesus was asked by His disciples how we should pray, He said, you should pray like this. Our Father. Friends, give thanks for your roots. Give thanks for God's blessing. Get yourself in a prayer cell if you can. And may God bless you all.